This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Agnosticism, The Battle Against Shameless Ignorance. And the author is James Kirk Wall, and Jim joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jim. Hello, Steve. How you doing? Well, I'm going to read uh, just uh, some statements that you make about your book, uh, just to set the stage for our discussion. You say, ask yourself the big questions, keep an open mind, and learn from some of the greatest thinkers of all time with agnosticism. And you also say, this book is about thinking. Two forces which cause great suffering and evil in this world are arrogance and shameless ignorance. We must arm ourselves well for the battle against these forces. It's a battle that will never be won and must always be fought. It's a battle fought against others and within ourselves. The will, character, and integrity of a person matters more than their religious or non-religious affiliation. Well, that, uh, boy, there's a lot to talk about just with those short sentences. Uh, you opened the door to a, a lot of discussion. Uh, what was the motivation, Jim, to write this book about agnosticism? Well, the, the motivation is, is really t for people to understand that the true meaning, because there's a lot of uh, misconceptions and, and misunderstandings uh, about the term. And it really does boil down to strengthening the individual uh, so that we can make better choices, because everything really comes down to choices. So when people are shamelessly uh, ignorant and in Obviously, everybody's uh, ignorant about some things, and this isn't about uh, just pointing the finger and, and, and being uh, arrogant or, or anything like that. I mean, I, I make it perfectly clear uh, this is a battle with, with, with others, and this is a battle within ourselves. But the more we learn and the more knowledge uh, we obtain, the less likely we are to be deceived and the more likely we are to have our own opinion and, and have a strong opinion. And we, when you look at the United States of America and a country that's by the people, the strength of this country derives from the strength of the people. So the more strong, stronger we are as individuals, uh, the more stronger the nation. So this, this is something that I really promote in, in this book. And I think a case in point was back before the Revolution, the Federalist Papers were published in the newspapers of the time, and people read those, uh, you know, just like normal reading, yet today those things are very challenging for us to read the Federalist Papers. Yep, yep, but uh, I mean, there's a lot of people uh, eager to, to, to learn, and in the literature, especially that from, from Thomas Paine, was, was critical uh, in the Revolution to, to keep everybody in informed and, and to get the message out and, and really have uh, words that inspired passion. Let's get right down to the bottom line, this question uh, you're most often asked, what sure. is an agnostic? 
Agnosticism is, uh, as Thomas Huxley put it, he said it's not a creed, it's, it's a method. I suppose you can say it's the creed of no creeds. Uh, basically, Thomas Huxley recognized Socrates as the first agnostic, uh, something that people, most people are not aware of, but, but something that's critical in understanding the term. So who was agnostic? Well, he was a philosopher uh, famous for saying, I'm the wisest man on earth because I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing. And a lot of people get a little bit uh, confused as exactly, you know, what what that means. And, and basically it, what it means is, is people who are always hungry for knowledge will always be without knowledge. So the literal translation of the agnostic term is, without knowledge, but it goes much deeper into that. It ties directly into ancient philosophy of scrutinizing what is true, basically. Uh, Don't be satisfied with with, uh, half-baked answers. Keep digging further for uh, deeper meanings. Uh, Don't be satisfied to suspect questions to the greatest questions of our existence, which aren't only questions about God, but are, are questions about you know, how to live, how to conduct ourselves, uh, and also uh, how to die, how to face death. So there are many uh, big questions, and in this book is about taking an agnostic approach, looking at a situation from all angles, uh, using as much reason and common sense as possible uh, to tackle these questions. Well, then, you list a few questions uh, here that we can talk about. One is, uh, what is the definition of God? Well, absolutely. There, there's actually a term, and, and when you do uh, research on these things, you find uh, all sorts of uh, areas for study. I mean, when you dig into religion, I mean, you know, there's a lot of confusion between atheism and agnosticism. And I think agnosticism just provides a little bit more detail because atheism in itself just is basically without God, which we've expanded to uh, without belief in God. And you look at the other side, uh, theism, which is belief in God, but you really don't have anybody calling themselves a theist. You have people saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Buddhist. So they're getting a little more specific uh, as to that broader term. I think atheism is is the same thing. Uh, There's people that call themselves uh, pantheists, which is believing that basically the essence of nature uh, is the God, and and there's some moral principles that that go along with that. Uh, We have deists, which go under the theist bucket, but really when you look at how they live, they live without worship or prayer and live without an interactive God in their lives, so they pretty much live the same way atheists and, and agnostics do. Um, and then you look at philosophical Taoism, uh, so there's, there's much deeper uh, terms and there's a lot to explore as far as uh, somebody who's looking for answers, somebody who's maybe uh, has doubts regarding the existence of God or, or has doubts regarding uh, the religion that they are currently uh, belong to because of, you know, because of their parents or because of the area they were born in, who are maybe looking for answers and seeing what else is out there. Well, well there's a lot out there, and, and there's a lot of uh, learning to do, and, and there's a lot of uh, things to explore, and I think that's really the agnostic approach. Don't 
dogmatically align yourself to anything. Always learn, always explore, and see everything that's out there because there might be something out there you really connect with, uh, but you're not going to find out unless you explore and unless you learn. So is this exploration the purpose of life? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, our, our purpose is, is what we make of it, and, and for an agnostic, uh, that, that is the purpose. I mean, I've seen some people try to uh, paint it a different way, saying, well, agnostics are lazy, and they just say, we don't know, and, and so we don't explore. Well, actually, the, the opposite is, is, is true. Uh, what we're saying is, we don't know, which means we, we have to find out. You know, we don't give up on knowledge. We, we go out and get it to the best of our ability. And once again, the way to look at it is if you're always hungry for knowledge, then you're always going to be without knowledge. Do you believe in evolution? Oh, absolutely. Evolution is a fact. And I think there's a lot of uh, confusion regarding evolution. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people who are religious, when they get that question, do you believe in evolution, they somehow think that, well, if I say I believe in evolution, I'm, uh, alleg- my, I'm pledging my allegiance to, to atheism, and, and that's not the case at all. I mean, agnosticism isn't about never saying that uh, something is true, no matter what the evidence. Based on the evidence we have, we can say that evolution is a fact, but there are still questions as to possible limitations of what could be explained by natural evolutionary process, which really can't plan beyond one generation at a time. So there are still some questions that leave open the possibility of intelligent design, the possibility of some kind of higher intelligence that occasionally uh, interferes with with the gene pool or or is the one that uh, created the first life forms with uh, uh, the structure where everything would evolve from there. So there's still theological uh, possibilities, even though evolution is very, very much a fact. Does an agnostic believe in an afterlife? Uh, for for me, I do not uh, believe in, in an afterlife, but I mean, with, with agnostics, there's a wide range uh, of, of people, and I think that's true of, of anything. I think even with uh, Christians, there's, there's a wide range of people who interpret uh, the documentation in, in, in different ways. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about agnosticism is everybody thinks, okay, this is specifically to the God question, but once again, Thomas Huxley recognized Socrates uh, as the first agnostic, and Socrates very much believed in God. Uh, Now, I don't believe in the afterlife, and and the reason being that the evidence for me is uh, brain injury. We, We know that through chemical imbalances in the brain, we know through brain injury, that it can completely change uh, somebody's personality, it can uh, completely change their memory. So if we had this soul that was separate from the physical brain, um, you know, how would this happen? How would this come to be? I think another issue for me is I think we also live and die during our lifetimes. The child becomes adult and and getting older and and certain things that happen in life can also uh, very much change uh, somebody to to who they are from who they are. So it seems like we do have some fluidity where we're not static. You know, we we do change as we we go through life. 
so just looking at uh, th- this evidence, um, I've come to the conclusion where I, you know, I, I don't see uh, that we have an afterlife uh, after our physical uh, brain shuts down. The, the only possibility I see for living forever is for science to figure out and pinpoint exactly uh, why we age and, and, and find some type of uh, method where they can stop or, or reverse the process. So do you fear death? I do not fear death. It's something I used to think about constantly, and, and I, I think that is a big reason why people turn to religion. In fact, I have a chapter on that where... You know, I, I talk about survival instinct, and animals have survival instincts, but it uh, has to do with keeping alive, such as uh, flight or fight or flight response, or making sure that you have the shelter, the food, the water, and everything you need to survive. Well, humans are animals, and so for the survival instinct, we do all those things, but at the same time, we have the intelligence to realize no matter how much money we have in the bank, no matter how much food we have, no matter how secure we are in, in our home, eventually we, we will die just like everyone else. And I think when it comes to the afterlife, this is kind of the survival instinct in our brains going into overtime and in finding this existence uh, beyond our, our, our physical bodies. And I think that's a big reason uh, for religion, but I, I don't fear, I, I lament death. I, I think our lives are wonderful. I, I think it's very sad that eventually uh, we, we do die. Um, and one of the chapters I wrote was how to die just in case it happens someday, which is, which is obviously uh, uh, somewhat of a joke there because it, it will happen someday. And something that kind of relieved the fear of death for me was just writing down uh, how I intended to die, what what I wanted my state of mind to be, how I wanted my uh, loved ones to be taken care of, and what what I wanted their memories to be of me. And I have examples of people in my life who did die, who I don't think uh, had a good good death, didn't leave good memories. And just going through that exercise and, and, and writing that down about how eventually uh, we will die when 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 it does happen. I believe that does alleviate uh, a lot of the fear and, and gives us a lot of uh, preparation. And, and I know that's uh, often practiced for people with, uh, who are terminal, uh, that there's now counseling that kind of goes through that sort of thing for, for preparation uh, for death. Without being religious, where do you get your moral guidance? There are many sources uh, where I get my moral guidance. And, and the thing about agnosticism, it's it's not anti-theological. It's not, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of the, the Bible or I'm afraid of any other religious text. It's about, well, go ahead and study religion. You know, take Religion 101, study all the Eastern and Western faiths and, and, and study philosophy. So for me, my moral guidance, a lot of it comes from ancient philosophies such as uh, Confucius and Socrates, uh, some of it does come from religion. When you look at some of the teachings of uh, Buddha, when you look at uh, some of the teachings of Jesus Christ, is his tolerance for uh, the sick and, and the poor and, and the sinners. Um, you know, a lot of it from Socrates, who was uh, an excellent uh, moral and ethical teacher. But I think really it comes down to uh, what's what's innate. You know, what connects with you. I mean, we have the Declaration of Independence with a very famous 
paragraph that goes, you know, everyone was, was born equal with certain inalienable rights, uh, such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there's people that say, well, Thomas Jefferson put in their creator. And unless you have the creator, unless you have this higher power, uh, the words really don't mean anything. Well, well, I disagree with that. The reason why these words mean something is they connect with us. If they didn't connect with us, then they wouldn't mean anything. And, uh, you know, with all due respect to, to Thomas Jefferson, for whom this country owes a, a great deal, and, I, and who I think was a very, a very remarkable person, you know, he was not a divine prophet. So he had no authority to be speaking for God. And most of us do have a sense of fairness. Uh, most of us are good, and we connect with what's our, what is good. And that's why that, that paragraph is so powerful. If uh, Thomas Jefferson said, according to our creator, we should all be communists, then um, you know, the people wouldn't, wouldn't follow it because they wouldn't connect with it. So really it's uh, people connect with that paragraph, which makes it so powerful uh, that the creator statement really is not uh, necessary, in, in my opinion. Now, if people want to believe that it does come from God, that's fine. There, there's also people that think it's the greatest moral reason of, of mankind, and, and that's fine as well. The title of the book, Agnosticism, The Battle Against Shameless Ignorance, and the author is James Kirk Wall. Jim, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on Amazon.com and uh, other online retailers, including iUniverse. Well, thank- and I also have a Facebook page, uh, Agnosticism, The Battle Against Shameless Ignorance. Well, thank you, Jim. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. All right. Thanks a lot. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions helping you identify the real problems and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence and, more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time. 
with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Matthew Livingston and the Politics of Death. And the author is Marco Canelli, and Marco joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Marco. How are you, Mr. Jorgensen? Well, great to have you with us. And right out of the, well, the whole tribute to the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, you have created Matthew Livingston, and this is your third book. That is correct. Third book of uh, Mysteries for Young Adults. Let me just read uh, something you've written just to set the stage. In book three of Matthew Livingston Mystery Series, Matthew Dennis and the multi-talented Sandra Small embark on a quest to expose an extremist who plays upon public fear, an extremist who is willing to kill to cover his tracks. As panic fills their small town, the brave trio must dodge the pestering of the police while using tech-savvy tricks and mind-bending logic to catch a killer. Of course, today would have to be tech-savvy tricks, right? That is correct, yes. (laughs) With all the Internet and everything. Well, give us a little uh, uh, background on you, Marco, your, all your police work, and uh, why you're continually writing th- these kinds of mysteries. Well, I'm happy to uh, have served the city of New York as a detective in the NYPD, arguably the greatest police department in the world. And uh, I've always admired reading and writing. And uh, a few years back, I had published my first uh, book, which was uh, Matthew Livingston, the, po- uh, the Prison of Souls. And... I really, it, it came about from just, um, you know, looking, looking at the young adult section of um, bookstores and just seeing that it was a re-release of what I refer to as the blue and yellow, the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. And I felt it was an area that really could use uh, an update and um, a background, like, a, a, you know, a character that could continue to grow, that people could wonder about from book to book, having, you know, uh, you know, been involved in police work at that time for about 17 years. Uh, I said, you know, there's so many stories that, that I've been involved in that could play out with young people solving, um, you know, young people working the trail, young people, and even coming up against opposition, as you do when you, when you create, uh, when, when you delve into an investigation, sometimes on your own side. But, um, that was, that was a, uh, that was a basis, a foundation for, for Matthew Livingston, but his character is uh, is so much greater than that. Uh, readers tell me uh, that they're perplexed by him. They want to understand him when they think they haven't figured out they don't. Sometimes he makes people angry, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's a healthy character because people continually uh, write me and ask me and at book signings want to know what they believe is the next move, uh, what drives this character, and I enjoy... Uh, you know, give me a little more in each book. Well, give us a little thumb sketch of his character. Well, I, you know, uh, people have always said, you know, and, and sadly in, in critics, if they wanted to find something, you know, uh, uh, dodgy about the book, they said, well, it's it's just a 17-year-old Sherlock Holmes. It's not correct. Um, 
think the style is similar to the way Dr. Watson reported the Sherlock Holmes um, novels and adventures. That first person. And the reason I like that is because I don't like the reader to know too much about Matthew Livingston. So Dennis Summers is the narrator. He's immediately, uh, he's, he's the, the low man on the totem pole is, is, is the best way to say it. He's 16, where Matthew and Sandra are 17. You know, immediately, you know, the year old is, 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 is the year older is a great prejudice in, uh, in the high school. He's always insecure about himself. And when he gets involved in these adventures, he's literally reporting to the reader what I notice, what I think, you know, what I found unusual. And it leads to a, an amazing insight into the character's crime-solving abilities. He's a thinker. Now, we may be in the year 2011. We may have technology beyond our wildest beliefs. But Matthew's crimes do eventually come from, from thinking, which is something, you know, we're all capable of. It's, uh, it's not magic. You know, it's not a superpower. It's just the ability to, uh, to, to, to push his intellect further. And in doing so... Uh, he's become a master of lateral thinking, outlining possibilities, deciphering ciphers, you know, uh, just, uh, again, the, the main, the main tool that drives this, this character's success is his mind. Well, and it sounds like uh, reality because you being a policeman, you know how you have to uh, push the, the limits and imagine things and think through things that bring you to, uh, conclusions, right? It is, and uh, that's why I was kind of glad with with the new book, The Politics of Death. Um, the, the the basis of the story in in, in the uh, you know the, the the crime that takes place is kind of a lot like a, a style of a mystery called the Lock Room Mystery. And whereas you you have every possible thing that could have happened, you know, uh, and you as the reader are following the the the, the trail of of footprints from the body backwards, and you still can't figure out how could this have been done. And uh, Matthew really investigates with, with, with Sandra and Dennis and, and gets into that, um, you know, there's, there has to be other possibilities in, in realizing how this person, you know, how the crime took place. But once that's decided, it's only half the battle. They realize that they know how the, how, how, how the, the, the politician was, uh, was killed, but now we have to look at preventing him from doing it to the next person and it really was it was a lot of fun to write and it just gets into it gets into the mind of 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 of, of bad people which i've been doing for a long long time and uh, that i get to share it with readers in a in this style of mystery is is just uh, it was a pleasure for me told by dennis summers of one of the main characters yes he is Tell us about Dennis. I think a lot of us, uh, when we were, we were younger or, you know, a, a junior in high school like Dennis, were, you know, neurotic and self-conscious, and <laughs> always asking questions and wondering about uh, if we were fitting in, you know. And Dennis um, serves all of that and leaves, bears his soul of that as a narrator and is actually quite amusing, you know. And I, I enjoy writing Dennis's uh, first-person narrative. The aspiring journalist, but he doesn't have much confidence. I <laughs> so but hey not many of us did it just that's right or if we did we were really putting it on you know and sandra she gets to drive the ford mustang most fun to write actually <laughs> uh just to, the challenge of, of writing uh, uh a female character and you know th that, that was also enjoyable because 
what we outlined earlier with uh, with the Hardys, we had boys, and with Nancy Drew, we had a girl, and and it just kind of put them together and how you get them to work together and and be good at what they do is just uh, it's it's great, you know. Tell me where you want to jump sure, back. In. That's sure. Fine. Now, one of the things important to you is to get young people to read. Absolutely. Uh, I've, you know, I've volunteered a lot of time. I've donated a lot of uh, my, my books uh, to, to programs that, well, it's either a school system or a library system that doesn't have the money, you know, uh, to, to get books or just, you know, to... Maybe showing somebody a book like this and letting them enjoy it, similar to the way I might have enjoyed something by Conan Doyle when I was young, or even, you know, H.G. Wells and something interesting, it eventually made you not afraid to to read, and read no matter what it is, a newspaper, a, you know, an application, instructions. Um, I try to really minimize the fear of reading. And a lot of people neglect it and, and, and don't get it. No, I, I, that's not for me. You know, I'd rather see a film or television or you know, go on the Internet. But um, it's it's very important. And with the story, I was kind of hoping to, you know, and it, it does work. You see people get turned on to it. And my favorite response would always be, like, I, I was dreadful at reading. Or, or, you know, a parent will tell you, my kids, they never did it. But they liked this, and, hey, now they're reading this, or they're reading more often, and, I just think it's important, you know, literacy is just really, uh, you know, the, the cornerstone of a, a good future in, in our country, just making people not afraid to read. What was the most challenging part of writing the book? Uh, you know, I, I, I have a very strange method of, of, um, of writing, and I outline very little. So uh, I just, you know, I, I maybe have an idea of the crime, and... Uh, some pitfalls the main characters could fall into, but challenging was really connecting these dots and uh, making it believable. Um, that That's always a great challenge because, again, we can always just say it's fiction and fly off the rails and, and uh, anything goes, but, you know, readers always thank me and they say, you know something, I realize, you know, we don't see 17-year-old crime fighters and things like that, but you presented it to us in a way that we could sit there and not have to suspend our disbelief. So that's always a challenge, keeping it real. And again, uh, you know, with, with my writing habits, tying it all together, giving you an interesting crime, delivering the plots at the, you know, at the proper point, and just uh, you know, getting a cohesive story that uh, the readers could sit there and attach themselves to, and avoiding the you know your your normal pitfalls of. Uh, it's not interesting, it's not believable, so uh, a culmination of those things. And as you pointed out, to get teenagers to think through things, to use their intelligence, but at the same time, not to resort to anger. Yeah, that is correct. That is a very good point. Yes, it's, um, there is frustration at times, but you, you said it correctly. So how do these tie in, these uh you know, you're tying in famous fictional detectives. How does this all tie into your experiences? I mean, are we talking about uh, some real crimes that you've been part of in solving? Based loosely. Um, obviously, uh, I uh, legally would not take on any of the 
uh, you know, the, the real verbatim stories, but based loosely on characters and situations, things I've seen, things I've experienced. So uh, you can always remember that time back in 1993 when this happened. And you know what? Uh, I, I really like to use it for the, the mode and method of the bad guys in the story. And that, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I for a while I had read a lot of older authors, and actually most of them who have been deceased for some time in, in the in the mystery and crime genre, but I don't know how it stacks up today. I mean, I was told that I was the only, you know, you see a lot of, like, uh, sheriffs and policemen across the country, and they, they write they write a crime novel, and it's fiction, or, or it may not be, but I was told I was the only one doing this in the young adult genre, and... I don't know where, like, uh, a Nelson DeMille or someone gets, uh, the, you know, the, the, the drive for their, their, their bad guys. But, um, you know, I, I, I've gotten it from personal experience, people I've seen, and you're sitting there saying to yourself, wow, what's going on in this guy's head? And then, you know, here it is years later, and you're, you're remembering this like it was yesterday and saying, you know what, that's why this person wants to do this. That's why this person is taking this risk. It's a lot about getting inside your bad guy's head, you know. Obviously, your character, your story rides on uh, on the good guys, the Matthew Livingstons, but when you have a real clever bad guy, you know, I mean, the 007 franchise uh, did wonders with the bad guys, right? Right. And in this bad guy, uh, Matthew feels he's being watched all the time. Yes, uh it- this this plays into the investigator's strategy, and strategy is very important. And this becomes like a chess game. You know, I could say, hey, I want to put the piece here, and that's great. I've taken one of yours, but, you know, you clobber me and, 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 and get access to my queen or my king because I made that move not having foresight. Matthew's very good at testing theories, uh, putting something out there. Um, a lot of times in, in his investigation, He's not going to get a result unless he pushes himself. He inserts himself. He tries this, and he gets a reaction. And is that reaction a lot like going fishing? He's going to see what he, what he in fact, can catch. Well, you've been given some great reviews. Uh, the award-winning author of The Science of Sherlock Holmes says, A modern successor to the Baker Street Irregulars, the youthful sidekicks of Sherlock Holmes. That was very flattering. Um, E.J. Wagner. I don't know. E.J. Wagner, yes. Um, she won the Edgar Award for uh, Best Nonfiction uh, Mystery Crime Title. And I, um, you know, that, that quote, it's, it even reminded me, uh, there were these characters vaguely mentioned, I think, in like two uh, episodes of Sherlock Holmes in, in, in the books called The Baker Street Irregulars. And he would give task to this, you know, young, like, uh, a group of street kids that, that ran around, and they, you know, became incorporated in, uh, I guess, you know, played a little part in, in home solving a mystery. So that's, um, to say, a modern success, I am extremely flattered, and especially from someone um, uh, so uh, well accomplished as E.J. Wagner. The third book of the Matthew Livingston Mystery Series. This one is titled Matthew Livingston and the Politics of Death. The author is Marco Canelli. Marco, tell us how to get your book. Um, we are live and everywhere, if not from our, our, our wonderful publishers at uh, Universe. We uh, are available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, all the online outlets. And 
you can just go to my website, marcocanelli.com, and, you know, this shows you a layout of the books, and you just point and click, and it takes you to a, you know, a, a local bookseller, and uh, you'd be in good shape. Marco, okay. thanks for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriended Principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Anger of Unfulfillment, Three Plays Out of Nigeria. And the author is Jekwu Ozemina. And Jekwu joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jekwu. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Good to have you with us all the way from Nigeria. Sounds like you're right here next door. <laughs> That's the beauty of technology, too. <laughs> <laughs> the Anger of Fulfillment, three plays out of Nigeria. Uh, first, this first play, and we'll go into details, just a little overview, examines the complex and multifaceted phenomenon of human trafficking, especially in women and girls. Wow, that is more than a tragedy. And then the other one is called Hell's Invitation, uh, a social death in Nigeria that is associated with HIV. And the third one, This Time Tomorrow, we have a little lighter look. Uh, We're going to talk about politics in Nigeria, and and politics is just humorous everywhere, isn't it? <laughs> Their approach to politics and nation building, the Nigerians, how they handle it. So, why did you do this, Jack Wu? Why did you uh, write these three plays? 
I think um, for me, um, writing for me is some of catharsis. Is the way is the means of unburdening my soul. So you know, sometimes you, I just sit back and you know I look at things that are happening around me, and it's uh, a society where you don't have too many voices for the various um, ills that occur. So I, I, I looked at um, I'll take health education for instance. I've, so much has been um, said about HIV in Africa, HIV in Nigeria, etc., etc. But I just saw that uh, most most uh, most most voices, most people are talking about it, are approaching it from the completely wrong perspective. I, I mean, they fight against HIV and AIDS because in in Nigeria there's a social stigma that comes with HIV. For instance, there is no single public leader or social leader um, in Nigeria that's living publicly, positively, publicly with HIV. What does that tell us? It tells us that even our leaders are not willing to live with the stigma, right? Now, if you don't remove the stigmatization, nobody can possibly come out early enough to assess the drugs that, that they need to manage the HIV virus. So we need to remove the stigma. Once you remove the stigma, HIV will... I mean, there's no virus known to man that has a cure. HIV will become another virus that can be managed. If you don't remove the stigma, before people... Um, people are actually forced to affect the drugs when they're almost at their deathbed. So there's a lot of ignorance about HIV. Is, is, it, is it more? It's not so much. About, it's not so much about ignorance. There's a whole lot of literature and education about HIV. But the point is that where, where I come from, right? Sex is not something people discuss openly. There is almost an assembly. It's almost um, you know, sex is dirty. We don't talk about it openly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, because there is a, there is, there, people have drawn some um, uh, line between connection between HIV um, transmission and sex, so it means that somebody who contacted HIV must be a bad person, in quotes, or a dirty person. So nobody wants to come out in public and say, oh, I'm this bad girl or bad guy or bad man or woman who has contacted HIV. So they, 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 they reply within themselves. Now, I will take it further. So people then say, you know, the human beings by the very nature like to put themselves on a pedestal where they can point out to the next guy and say, hey, I'm better than that guy, right? So people then point at this guy to say, you know, this person has HIV, you know, you have to avoid this person, etc. Et I don't think it has to do um, so much um, with education. I think it has to do with some level of almost some cultish ostracization or ostracism that occurs within Africa. Nobody wants to deal with you. So if somebody who, who is HIV positive, who is publicly living with HIV positive, will most likely be abandoned by friends, abandoned by family, abandoned by even, may even lose his or her job. So there's a social death that comes with um, declaring um, uh, your uh, HIV status. It is positive. The person dies a million times before the virus even kills the person. So the people with HIV become like outcasts. Correct. My goodness. So these characters, uh, you call them the, uh, these characters could be the average Nigerian, the, the four characters that are in this uh, play, Hell's Invitation. Uh, is there something that stands out about them? Yes. You know, what I try to do, I mean, um, interestingly, um, Hell's Invitation um, a lot of the characters, a lot of the character, uh, characters around, some characters that were around me when I when I undertook my first HIV test. 
okay? And a lot of the things that are called there are actually real reactions from real people. In fact, if you look at the principal character, um, Aliyu, he, he had to undertake uh, a pre-employment, a medical test, HIV, etc., when he got a job with an oil, um, oil company in Nigeria. I, my first job was with an oil company in Nigeria, and I had to undergo a pre-employment um, medical test, which included a HIV test. Now, a lot of these utterances are actually what people said when I told them that I undertook HIV test. So you can imagine why people will react. Why will you, the reaction will be, why did you have to do that? You should have left their job for them. You, you would rather um, live without the knowledge uh, and then die after a brief illness. Because, you know, in Nigeria today, when most people die, what you see in the obituary is that he died after a brief illness. And, of course, you, you know that HIV or AIDS is, at the end of the day, is, um, is a mosaic of several ailments. So... Uh, somebody can die of pneumonia or tuberculosis or, or any of the HIV-related and AIDS-related ailments. But nobody wants to mention that word. So people are actually living in denial. Right, in denial. That is the worst kind of ignorance. Well, let's take a look at the anger of fulfillment where we look at this tragedy, this beyond comprehension, human trafficking, especially in women and girls. I think, I mean, human trafficking has become a global, a global business, a multi-billion dollar business across the globe. I mean, anybody who, and we see it every day, it's just that we don't recognize the signs of human trafficking. So um, that um, young black girl or Indian girl down the street who's working in a shop can actually be trafficked. Now, we need all of us, I mean, collectively as humanity, we need to understand, know the telltale signs of trafficking. I'll take you back um, I'll give you some um, insight as to how I came about this. I was researching something unrelated to, to human trafficking. And then I then realized, I stumbled upon um, a story of a young girl who was trafficked. And then I, I dug deeper. And then I, I stumbled upon this tree. This, you know, um, human trafficking in Nigeria is, there's, there's a, it's almost, I won't use the word mafia, but I'll use um, a cartel that runs human trafficking, and the way they do it, they, they entice these young girls with um, tales of El Dorado, beautiful jobs in Europe, America, etc., etc., and they get them to undertake a voodoo oath. Now, I mean, you, you can laugh about it, laugh about it, and say voodoo, I mean, why would voodoo bind anybody to anything? But, you know, there's this belief that um, deities or uh, voodoos are very extremely powerful out of Africa, so somebody who undertakes that oath will rather die than go against um, the oath he or she is taking. Because I believe is that if she breaks that oath or that vow, right, the, the oracle or the voodoo will kill her or kill her family, etc., etc. And in some cases, they go, they go even beyond that to threaten their families. So you see, when they send these girls, when they smuggle these girls into Europe, they, they either put them on some hallucinogenic um, um, drugs or some... And they, they, some, some of them are clearly raped and they are forced into prostitution. And when they refuse, right, to do um, the, their, their, their abductors' bidding, their families are threatened back home in Nigeria. Now, there's a whole industry surrounding um, this human trafficking. But there are some areas, there are some parts of Nigeria who, who, um, who their women from those areas are known. Um, for being trafficked. Some of them eventually pay off their abductors, come back and become what they call Italo Madame, 
I, I refer that's the there's a character there I refer to as Madame Boy Spotter, who speaks a smattering of bad English and bad Italian, right? And then co co um, uh, start this cycle again of of taking girls, luring girls into Europe, and promising them heaven and earth, and forcing them into prostitution. A lot of money made in, in that kind of trafficking, right? Now, of course, most of the money that's made in that kind of trafficking doesn't go to the uh, to the victims. No, it goes to the no. people who run the business. Right, right. Because the victims are forced to pay every dime that was spent by um, their abductors uh, um, to to um, before they before they are before they are released. Right. Okay. And most times they, they never finish paying um, for for this service. Okay. Sometimes when they finish, when they think they are finished paying, they'll be handed over to another team and handed over to another team. Most of them end up broken, or most of them who manage to escape, maybe come across a good Samaritan who takes them to any of these agencies that help traffic women or girls, um, then live to tell the tale. But many of them die in Europe. In fact, many of them die in the dangerous desert crossing because. A lot of them can't go through the traditional routes of um, air, air, um, um, flight, etc. They actually trek across the desert, which is a hazardous um, um, means of getting to Europe. The other play is titled This Time Tomorrow. It presents a comic portrait of Nigerians and their approach to politics and nation-building. Of course, uh, you know, sometimes we make jokes about politics, but it's serious business and it's not funny at all because of the effect it has on the regular citizen. So what kind of approach are you taking here? Okay, I think it's just a satire on, on, on uh, what my take on, um, on politics in Nigeria. I try to create um, some caricatures of um, um, politicians and individuals and how they how they perceive politics and how they deal politics. The, the key, one of the key characters there, Professor Gundero, is actually uh, uh, an a mosaic of my father, one of my professors when I was in university. My father went into politics at some point. He was a very ethical man, very straight, um, straightforward man. He, he, he was brought up, he was, he, he was an old school um, Nigerian, brought up in British schools, um, taught, um, brought up on straight principles, etc., etc., and he, he, he believed that he could never soil his um, fingers, right, to tread uh, the narrow path, the straight and narrow path. But you see, in Nigeria, there is no safety net, unlike um, um, countries in Europe and, and North America, right? Um, there's no welfare, there's nothing. So if you crash, you know, you fall, you fall the Humpty Dumpty, you know, there's no putting it together again. <laughs> um, so, so, so that is actually one of the things that breeds corruption in Nigeria. Because people know that there is no safety net, there is no societal safety net, they get into positions of power and they try to amass as much wealth as possible. In fact, they, they try to amass as much wealth that will take care of their generations yet to come. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, my late father was a, was a very educated man, a well-traveled man. He worked in, um, he worked in, um, he was in the foreign service. He worked with OPEC. And then he came back to join politics. But, you know, he came back from an almost too educated, elitist um, perspective. He didn't understand the, the rough um, terrain of Nigerian politics. And it was a, at that point in time, it's gradually changing. But it was a, um, a, a money bag, um, cash, the um, biggest cash all takes it all um, kind of um, environment. So at some point, 
he lost every election he contested, not because he didn't have the pedigree to win, right? But because he was he, the, the other, he opened bankrolled every everybody possible and and, and won the election. So uh, then, so all the characters I created around around Professor uh, Bindero are actually characters that exist today in our society. So we have the idealists who say, okay, you know, we need to do this for the people, we need to do that for the people, we need to do this for the people. We have the money bank to just come and say, you know what, I have the cash, I'm going to pay you, just do my bidding and give me your votes, okay? We have the young guys who are saying, you know, it's our time to rule, let's um, take a stand, and Nigeria belongs to all of us, um, and let's um, go in there and do the right thing. So it was not an I think it's the lightest play I've written, I've ever written. Um, but I just wanted something um, that's not too heavy, like um, um, that doesn't, that's not a, almost a crusade, like um, Hell's Invitation and the Anger of Unfulfillment. The title of the book, these three plays, it's called The Anger of Unfulfillment, three plays out of Nigeria. The three plays are titled The Anger of Unfulfillment, Hell's Invitation. And this time tomorrow, they were written, produced in the last 13 years of Nigeria's 50 years of independence. Jekwu, tell us how to get this book. Um, the, the book is available on, on all the major international, um, in all the major international um, books, bookstores, especially the online stores. It's available on Amazon.com, on Barnes and Nobles, and I think it's available almost everywhere. So I, I think it's within reach. I, you can also get it from iUniverse, uh, the publishers. So I, I guess it's within reach of anybody who wants to, to get it. And I think um, it's, uh, it's a refreshing take on things that are happening in Nigeria. I think anybody who's interested in knowing, in understanding um, the thinking behind um, um, the, 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 the politics in Nigeria, anybody who's interested in understanding why the scourge of HIV AIDS has remained as potent as it is in Nigeria, anybody who's interested in understanding um, the issues around human trafficking in Nigeria, both the economic and the cultural issues, should take a look at the play. Well, thank you, Jack Wu. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you very much. And you're also welcome. Jekwu Ozemina, he is the playwright, and he's also a poet, and the name of his book, The Anger of Fulfillment, Three Plays Out of Nigeria. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.